Hope is a function of struggle. We develop hope not during the easy or comfortable times, but through adversity and discomfort. It's also important to know that hope is learned. Children with high levels of hopefulness have experience with adversity. They've been given the opportunity to struggle. And in doing that, they learn how to believe in themselves and their abilities. Welcome to Philosopher Insights, the podcast that delivers wisdom in minutes a day that you can put into practice daily and strive to master over a lifetime. The podcast committed to sharing ideas that encourage you to bridge the gap between who you are today and the person you aspire to be in the future. Hi, my name is Herb Lamba and welcome to my podcast where I will share practical insights from the world's best authors. Knowledge is empowered. Applied knowledge is. The quest to become the best version of you starts right now. Hi, and welcome to Philosopher Insights. Today we're discussing Atlas of the Heart, mapping meaningful connection and language of human experience. The author of this book is Brene Brown, and it's published in 2021. I wanted to share a number of my favorite insights from this book, starting with anxiety and excitement, comparison, hope, perfectionism and shame, hurt, foreboding joy, anger, near enemies, and finishing off with a closing thought. So let's start this with the introduction. Quote, People will do almost anything not to feel pain, including causing pain and abusing power. Very few people can handle being held accountable without rationalizing, blaming, or shutting down, and without understanding how our feelings, thoughts, and behaviors work together. It's almost impossible to find our way back to ourselves and each other. When we don't understand how our emotions shape our thoughts and decisions, we become disembodied from our own experiences and disconnected from each other. When I think about the data, I think back to a quote from the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein that I came across in college. He says, quote, The limits of my language means the limits of my world. End quote. What does it mean if the vastness of human emotion and experience can only be expressed as mad, sad, or happy? What about shame, disappointment, wonder, awe, disgust, embarrassment, despair, contentment, boredom, anxiety, stress, love, overwhelm, surprise, and all of the other emotions and experiences that define what it means to be human? Imagine if you had a shooting pain in your left shoulder that was so severe it actually took your breath away. The pain kept you from working, sleeping, and fully engaging in your life. When you finally arrive at the doctor's office and she asks you what's going on, there's suddenly tape over your mouth and your hands are tied behind your back. You try yelling through the tape and freeing your hands so you can point to your shoulder, but there's no use. You're just there, inches and minutes from help and possible relief, but you can't communicate or explain the pain. This is not different from what can happen to us when we are unable to articulate our emotions. We feel hopeless or we feel a destructive level of anger. Language is our portal to meaning-making, connection, healing, learning, and self-awareness. When we don't have the language to talk about what we're experiencing, our ability to make sense of what's happening and share it with others is severely limited. End quote. Brene Brown is back with one of the most anticipated books in history. This book made it to number one on the charts before the book was even released. I love Brene's work. But I have to admit, this book was much different than I expected. In this book, she explores 87 emotions and experiences which have been organized into collections that make up the different chapters. So let's start with insight number one, anxiety and excitement. 
Anxiety and excitement feel the same, but how we interpret and label them can determine how we experience them. Even though excitement is described as an energized state of enthusiasm leading up to or doing an enjoyable activity, it doesn't always feel great. We can get the same coming out of our skin feeling that we experience when we're feeling anxious. Similar sensations are labeled anxiety when we perceive them negatively and excitement when we perceive them positively. One important strategy when we're in these feelings is to take a deep breath and try to determine whether we're feeling anxiety or excitement. Researchers found that labeling the emotion as excitement seems to hinge on interpreting the bodily sensations as positive, end quote. This is huge and something I became acutely aware of in 2019 during the Optimized Coach program. Once I understood the difference, I began to leverage this in situations that warranted courage. There will always be situations in our lives where we feel anxiety. The big presentation at work, the important job interview, or the first time you go on a date with someone. But instead of viewing situations as negative, view them as positive and say loudly, I'm excited. I have used this strategy many times since I was first introduced to it. I love how Fritz Perls, founder of Gestalt Therapy, frames it. Quote, fear is excitement without the breath. End quote. Feeling anxious? Maybe all that is required is for you to take a deep breath and repeat, I'm excited. Insight number two, comparison. Quote, comparison is the crush of conformity from one side and the competition from the other. It's trying to simultaneously fit in and stand out. Comparison says, be like everyone else, but better. When we compare, we want to be the best or have the best of our group. The comparison mandate becomes this crushing paradox of fit in and stand out. It's not be yourself and respect others for being authentic. It's fit in, but win. I want to swim the same workout as you and beat you at it. End quote. My favorite view on comparison comes from Raise Your Game by Alan Stein Jr., where he shares, quote, My friend Paul Biancardi of ESPN loves to say, You will always lose the comparison game. Why is that? Because it's rigged. It has no function besides enlarging self-doubt. I'm typing this chapter on board a flight to South Dakota. Among the 250 passengers on this plane, I can quickly find someone better looking, funnier, more successful, taller, more muscular, smarter. It won't take long to find someone that scores higher than me on almost any metric. If I use these people as my measuring stick, to determine my self-worth and value, I will always lose, end quote. The happiest people are the ones that take pleasure in the success of others, but the most unhappy people are deflated by others' accomplishments. I think it's important to self-reflect and determine how you view the success of others and to stop playing the comparison game. Insight number three, hope. Quote, hope is a function of struggle. We develop hope not during the easy or comfortable times, but through adversity and discomfort. Hope is forged when our goals, pathways, and agency are tested, and when change is actually possible. It's also important to know that hope is learned. Children with high levels of hopefulness have experience with adversity. They've been given the opportunity to struggle, and in doing that, they learn how to believe in themselves and their abilities. As someone who struggles watching my kids struggle, I can tell you, this is hard. I remind myself of the saying, quote, prepare the child for the path, not the path 
for the child. End quote. That passage really struck me because it's the first time I've heard the connection between hopeful people and adversity. Children require boundaries, consistency, and support in their relationships. A child with high hope has faced adversity and struggles in their lives, which taught them how to overcome obstacles and believe in themselves. Quote, Hopelessness stems from not being able to set realistic goals. We don't know what we want. And even if we can identify realistic goals, we can't figure out how to achieve them. If we attempt to achieve the goals, we give up when we fail. We can't tolerate disappointment, and we can't reset. Last, we don't believe in ourselves or our ability to achieve what we want. End quote. A quick look back at what Shane Lopez shared in Making Hope Happen. He says, quote, The hopeful share core beliefs that set them apart from others. Two of them are, the future will be better than the present, and I have the power to make it so. Hopeful people believe there are numerous paths to my goal, and none of them is free of obstacles. End quote. Our collective focus should be on strengthening our hope muscles by rethinking our goals and the paths to achieve them. We must eliminate the shame of potentially having to start over again and again. Insight number four, perfectionism and shame. Quote, Shame is the birthplace of perfectionism. Perfectionism is not striving to be our best or working toward excellence. Healthy striving is internally driven. Perfectionism is externally driven by a simple but potential all-consuming question. What will people think? It may be counterintuitive, but one of the biggest barriers to working toward mastery is perfectionism. In our leadership research, We've learned that achieving mastery requires curiosity and viewing mistakes and failure as opportunities to learn. Perfectionism kills curiosity by telling us that we have to know everything or we risk looking less than. Perfectionism tells us that our mistakes are personal defects, so we either avoid trying new things or we barely recover every time we inevitably fall short. End quote. It's hard to live a productive life when you constantly feel like you are falling short of others' expectations, or you become so concerned about what others will think that you fail to even begin. Quote, healthy striving is self-focused. How can I improve? Perfectionism is other-focused. What will they think? End quote. A quick look back now at the solution to perfectionism from The Pursuit of Perfect by Tal Ben-Shahar, where he says, quote, the antidote to perfectionism and the prescription for optimalism is the acceptance of reality, of what is, be it failures, emotions, or success. End quote. Perfectionism is frequently confused with self-improvement, but its primary goal in your life is to gain acceptance and approval. Aim for healthy striving by focusing on your own improvements and letting go of worrying about what others will think. Insight number five, hurt. Quote, I'm not sure there's a braver sentence in the human catalog of brave sentences than, quote, my feelings are hurt, end quote. It's simple, vulnerable, and honest, but we don't say it very often. We get pissed off, or we hurt back, or we internalize the hurt until we believe we deserve it, and that something is wrong with us. But rarely do we say, quote, this really hurt my feelings, end quote. Hurt feelings are typically experienced in conjunction with other emotions, including sadness, anger, worry, and jealousy. As a result, they do not constantly feel the exact same way, unlike most other emotions. 
Quote, one thing that motivates me to be a little braver in how I handle my hurt feelings is research that shows that when we respond to hurt feelings with anger, the other person tends to match our anger with more anger. However, when repair seems possible and we share our hurt feelings and try to reconnect without the anger, the other person tends to respond with constructive actions, including apologies and amends, end quote. Why do I get the impression that many of you reading this are having an aha moment? Our natural reaction to hurt feelings is anger, but research suggests that connecting without the anger is the more acceptable approach. It's preferable to get to the level of apologizing than to allow the hurt feelings to fester into resentment for days. Insight number six, foreboding joy. Quote, when I give talks, people always seem surprised by the finding that joy is the most vulnerable human emotion. Given that I study fear and shame, people are hesitant to believe that something as positive as joy can make us squirm. Then I share what is almost certainly the most surprising finding for most people. If you're afraid to lean into good news, wonderful moments, and joy, if you find yourself waiting for the other shoe to drop, you are not alone. It's called foreboding joy, and most of us experience it, end quote. Our world is shaped by language. Simply recognizing this pattern of foreboding joy, as Brown has done, helps us change it by bringing it to our attention. Then, by accurately naming our joys as joys and our anxieties as fears, we can become more at ease with the light and dark in our environment and avoid conflating the two. Quote, In our research, we found that everyone who showed a deep capacity for joy had one thing in common. They practiced gratitude. In the midst of joy, there is often a quiver, a shudder of vulnerability. Rather than using that as a warning sign to practice imagining the worst-case scenario, the people who lean into joy use the quiver as a reminder to practice gratitude. End quote. We grow our joy muscles by not forgetting our sorrows, but resetting our inner clock so that we are not as terrified of joy when it emerges. We relax into its embrace without feeling guilty or ashamed. We can sense not only what we don't have, but also what we do. Insight number seven, anger. Quote, we asked around 7,500 people to identify all the emotions that they could recognize and name when they were experiencing them. The average was three, glad, sad, and mad. Or as they were more often written, happy, sad, and pissed off. Couple this extremely limited vocabulary with the importance of emotional literacy, and you basically have a crisis. It's this crisis that I'm trying to help address in this book. Over the past two decades, when research participants talked about being angry, the story never stopped there. Their narratives for anger unfolded into stories of betrayal, fear, grief, injustice, shame, vulnerability, and other emotions. We live in a world where it's much easier to say, I'm so pissed off that I feel so betrayed and hurt. It's even easier to say, I am angry with myself, than I'm disappointed with how I showed up, end quote. Brown says that of the 87 emotions and experiences she outlines in the book, more than 20 of them are presented as anger or alongside anger. Quote, anger is a catalyst. Holding on to it will make us exhausted and sick. Internalizing anger will take away our joy and spirit. Externalizing anger will make us less effective in our attempts to create change and forge connection. It's an emotion that we need to transform into something life-giving. 
courage, love, change, compassion, justice, end quote. If we internalize or externalize anger, it really doesn't serve our long-term well-being. But finding ways to transform that emotional energy to courage, love, and other more positive emotions certainly makes sense. If anger is a catalyst, then why not use it as a catalyst for positive change? Insight number eight, near enemies. Quote, I'm going to share a new theory with you that's the culmination of my work since the beginning, and I do mean the very start. The new work is a theory on cultivating meaningful connection. The elusive piece was rediscovering the Buddhist concept of near enemies. Studying near enemies took me down the research rabbit hole, and the more I read, the more I realized that for years, I've underestimated this concept's power and contribution to explaining human behavior. In an incredibly powerful article, The Near and Far Enemies of Fierce Compassion, Chris Germer writes, quote, Near enemies are states that appear similar to the desired quality, but actually undermine it. Far enemies are the opposite of what we are trying to achieve, end quote. I found this last section of the book very fascinating. A near enemy of love is attachment, and it's important to understand this nuance. Attachment says, I will love you only if you love me back, or that I will love you only if it's the way I want. Both of these examples take away from the true definition of love. Quote, it's the near enemies of connection, the imposters that can look and feel like cultivating closeness, that sabotage relationships and leave us feeling alone and in pain, end quote. The far enemy of loving kindness is ill will, and with them being opposites, it's very easy to detect them. But near enemies are stealth in nature, and the connection is not so obvious, but can be equally detrimental. Insight number nine, closing thought, quote, My hope is that we find that solid ground within us, that shore that offers safe harbor when we're feeling untethered and adrift. The more confident we are about being able to navigate to that place, the more daring our adventures and the more connected we are to ourselves and each other. The real gift of learning language, practicing this work, and cultivating meaningful connection is being able to go anywhere without the fear of getting lost, even when we have no idea where we are or where we're going. With the right map, we can find our way back to our heart and to our truest self. End quote. What a closing paragraph. I just love that. That concludes my quick look at Brene Brown's fascinating look at identifying life experiences and being able to accurately name them. Language matters. You've been listening to Philosopher Insights with your host, Herb Lambert. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To go deeper with me, you can register for free at www.philosopherinsights.com for instant access to a growing library of Philosopher Insights, which are 8-10 to 10 page PDFs plus 20-minute MP3s that break down my favorite insights from the world's best personal development books. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook at Optimal Herb. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.